Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law360 here in Washington. And joining me by Zoom from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. Excited for today because we're doing things uh, a little bit differently this week. That's right. It was, a, it was a pretty quiet week at the Supreme Court. There were no orders or opinions or even arguments to speak of. I assume the justices are you know, stowed away in their offices, cranking out the last opinions of the term, but we'll be waiting on those a little bit longer. So today we thought we would take a little bit of this downtime to talk about an issue that is obviously one of the utmost importance, and it has to do with race in the Supreme Court. Yes, and we did a, a little bit of light reading in preparation for, for this episode because there's a new book coming out called Justice Deferred, um, and it's all about race in the Supreme Court. Uh, we actually have the authors Vernon Burden and Armand Derfner on uh, to talk about the book. That's right. Uh, Burton is the prize-winning author of several books and a distinguished professor of history at Clemson University. Um, as well as a professor at the University of Illinois. Uh, Durfner has been a civil rights lawyer for many decades. He was um, a lawyer for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund and Education Fund. Uh, He's argued several cases before the Supreme Court, so obviously a lot of expertise between the two of them. But I would just say that, you know, uh, picking up the book, I was pretty struck by it was kind of the first comprehensive look at um, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on race, you know, stretching back to the founding era with the court's decisions, you know, for instance, on this thing called the Doctrine of Discovery, which from the earliest days of the Republic kind of established white supremacy as the rule du jour up to the Reconstruction and then on to the Civil Rights Movement. And then, of course, today, and it was pretty impressive to see just how recent they were able to um, update this book with cases from you know the court's most recent term. So, like I said, it's a very comprehensive look at it, and uh, I enjoyed reading it. Yeah, they looked at something like over two hundred cases over that time period that you you just uh, mentioned, and I mean they, they they got all the way up to Justice Barrett and the pandemic. Uh, that's how kind of up to date the book is. So, without further ado, let's get to our interview with authors Vernon Burton and Armin Durfner of the upcoming book, Justice Deferred, Race in the Supreme Court. Vernon and Armand, welcome both of you. It's great to have you on the podcast today to talk about the book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, let me start with you, Vernon. What inspired you to write this book? Well, it's interesting. Armand and I met in 1980 when, in fact, the Supreme Court decided that it was not enough that uh, a law discriminated or made it more difficult in voting for African Americans or minority plaintiffs to be able to to win a, a lawsuit. And at that point, they said you also had to have intent, that it was done purposeful. There was a great article in the New York Times that said, what are we going to do, dig up people from 1870 and ask them if they intend to discriminate, at which point Attorneys like Armand, who's actually written an article 
a very good article about expert witnesses, knew that historians, their job was to look at the motivation behind laws and the intention. And so I was asked to help with a court case starting in 1980. And, you know, as I say in Casablanca, that was beginning of a beautiful friendship. Uh, And we have been discussing these very issues that come out in the book since 1980. At some point, uh, many years back, Armand decided he would start, he was teaching uh, at a law school and was putting together a case book and said he'd like to do a book about this. And it started there. And, and we've, actually been working on this book since we've known each other, but really the last six, seven, eight years really focused it into the book that it became. Well, I really appreciate reading it, the kind of seamless transition between the historical context and the actual legal research and the underlying you know, rationale that the courts are adopting in, in these cases. And I want to ask you, Armand, you know, what was that process like? Was it pretty seamless to have a co-author focus on the historical side while you focused on the legal research side? How did that work? It, it, Vernon's comment about the 40 years that we have spent talking about these makes the big difference. It might have been much more difficult, except we've spent all these years um, blending history and uh, law and the Supreme Court uh, so that it became seamless by the time the actual writing took place. Diving into the book, um, you know, I, I think most people are aware of the Supreme Court's decision in 1857, Dred Scott, which held um, that African-Americans have no no rights under the Constitution. Then came the, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which I think your book so powerfully revolves around all those amendments, um, you know, and, and they were supposed to wipe out that stain of, of racism and, and white supremacy. Um we know now that, you know, the, the, the promise of Reconstruction wasn't necessarily achieved, though, right away. <laughs> so so I, I guess our question here is, is you know, what role did the, the Supreme Court play in, in undermining the restru- Reconstruction after the Civil War? Well, the, the problem is, uh, as you say, there was Dred Scott, but Dred Scott may or may not have been in, a, in line with the Constitution of that day. But when the 13th, 14th, and 15th Reconstruction Amendments came along, they spoke of equality, especially the 13th Amendment, which was designed to overcome slavery, not just end it, but overcome the badges and incidents of slavery. And so those amendments, both in what they meant originally and what they said textually, should have uh, produced, put us on a road to to equality. Um, They didn't, and for a hundred years they didn't. And so the Warren court sort of did a redo, a do-over of what should have happened. Since that time, I'm I'm afraid we've been sort of going backwards. And the real irony is that people who call themselves originalists and people who call themselves textualists should really be giving a vigorous, very strong interpretation of those amendments. And if they were given the really strong, uh, literal and original interpretation— we'd be a lot further along toward racial equality than we are now. I I think what Armand says, I agree with completely, except I think the 13th, 14th, 15th did set us on that road, and the Supreme Court played a major, major uh, part in 
in blocking that road. And there are some Correct. great examples of what's happening uh, today, let alone what happened um, at that at that time. We can think of the Cruikshank decision. And Armour, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it a foreset in a Cruikshank or in another case? Uh, a, that's, a, a, that's a different case, but the same day, same, the same, same pr- day. Right, same thing. A little word like that and how it's interpreted made all the difference so that if with the Ku Klux uh, Acts, those sorts of things that that the Reconstruction Congress did, if the Supreme Court had not ruled differently on these things and undone the laws during the Civil Rights Movement, what would have happened if you could have arrested people at Little Rock for the the kinds of violence that they were perpetuating as individuals, the federal government could have stepped in, or the civil rights movement. What a difference that could have made. It's one of the great contingencies I don't think we've looked at and how the Supreme Court, sometimes with a, with a vote of just one or two, has made such a difference in how we interpret the laws. You know, for years, going back to to the most famous, I guess, is the sociologist uh, Graham Sumner saying that, you know, you know, laws can't change folk ways, but we, with particularly the Supreme Court, those laws did change people's attitudes. It literally made it illegal to, in fact, black and white and other races to, to marry. So, you know, the laws did change what had happened before. And you mentioned those 100 years from the Reconstruction Amendments to the time of the civil rights legislation in, in the 60s. And part of that was, in effect, those cases that you talked about, Shank, and your book goes through describing how the, the so-called slaughterhouse cases adopted a very narrow um, interpretation of equal protection that made it really difficult for the federal government to protect the new uh, found rights of black Americans in the South. And so let's get into this kind of agonizingly long walk, right, from this second founding after the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, it wasn't obviously just one day the Supreme Court flicked on its lights and decided to desegregate school systems across the country. It was, it was a, there was incremental change in that period. Can, you, can you, either of you kind of speak to maybe some early signs before the 1954 decision um, desegregating schools in Brown versus Board of Vacation that kind of showed that the Supreme Court was on this march to, to more equality after, after you know, the failed promise of Reconstruction? Well, um, if you take a look at the chapter headings, um, chapter three and four talk about the the late 19th century and the very early years of the 20th century. Chapter five is called Beginning the Long, Slow Turnaround. It was almost as if in the teens and 1920s and early 30s, the court hit bottom. And then in the late 30s and the 1940s, uh, we call that chapter, which is chapter six, we call that chapter Breaking New Ground. And that was a time, as you say, the Supreme Court started picking, moving in a new direction. And in 1938, the court for the first time uh, took a, struck a blow against segregated schools. Um, Missouri ha- had no graduate education for 
uh, for blacks, uh, no law school education. And what they used to do was provide what they call car fare education. If a black person wanted to go to uh, law school or graduate school, they would say, well, go apply to some school in a, in a neighboring state and we'll give you a round trip railroad ticket. Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court said that is not good enough. It was an opinion by uh, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes, which he is a whole nother story. He is a real hero of the Supreme Court. But in that case, the Supreme Court said uh, that is not good enough. And even if we are still under the rule of separate but equal, that is not separate but equal. And that was really the beginning. The NACP had carefully planned that case out. And that was the beginning of what they call the road to Brown versus the Board of Education. And I'll just say one more. Uh, a few years later, the Supreme Court, uh, which had upheld the white primary in 1935, well, in 1944, they came back and they said, no, the white primary is unconstitutional. Uh, in 1948, they said racially restrictive covenants where private citizens got together and said, oh, no, no black or, or Jew or Chinese person or whatever can move into our neighborhood. Supreme Court said that was unconstitutional. So that period of the four, late 30s, 1940s, and the very early 50s are part of that road that you're talking right. about. And just to kind of put the put the cap on Brown versus Board of Education here, when we get to that landmark, perhaps the most famous Supreme Court ruling in the nation's history, I don't know, Vernon, if you can talk to this, but uh, the book describes how that, that decision almost didn't come about just because of the fact that there was this whole political question surrounding uh, the new Chief Justice's appointment to the Supreme Court. Can either of you speak to that? Either one of us can, then I, yeah. I can add something. But there's a lot of what ifs or contingency throughout the book. And, you know, particularly if uh, Chief Justice uh, Vincent hadn't died, what would have happened that Eisenhower actually did not want to appoint Warren initially? He wanted to go, go with someone else. But even more fascinating to me is James F. Burns, who was one of the most powerful uh, and talented uh, politicians or statesmen, statespersons that certainly come out of the American South had been on the Supreme Court. And, of course, it's James F. Burns, who is so talented and so well-connected uh, and was so close to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who comes back after being Secretary of State, known as the Cardinal Richelieu of the Senate, comes back to South Carolina to be governor explicitly to fight integration and school integration. So there's a lot of contingencies with all of this, including where Brown v. Board really starts in the most unlikely of places, a very rural community in South Carolina where a minister, uh, Reverend Delaney, with his church, First, only wanted gas for a bus because the schools were segregated. Children were having to walk right. seven miles or more. Uh, and the NACP and Thurgood Marshall thought, well, this this is be an unlikely place to ever, uh, you know, win this sort of thing. What difference can it make? And these people are true heroes. When they ask for plaintiffs, and these people risk everything, their lives, their livelihood, and many of them lost their livelihoods, their employment, that it was like 80 people wanted to be plaintiffs. 
that followed through. And this is the case that became Brown v. Board. I think a major thread that seemed to connect the book was um, the reference to the 13th Amendment's badges and incidents of slavery, which I know Armand mentioned um, early on in this conversation. Um, I, I, I guess, though, for our listeners, can you kind of discuss how that has been a crux for so much litigation that you that you surveyed in this book, including how it potentially reaches into more modern day litigation? Right. Uh, in fact, the, part of the question is, you know, people sometimes sometimes say, well, why does the past matter? Uh, and uh, I guess this book is, is, is partly an answer to that. And if I could pick up one of those things about the 13th Amendment, uh, we talk about affirmative action like everybody does. And we point out that, um, of course, for the last 40 years, there's been a big debate in the country and on the Supreme Court about affirmative action based on race. Uh, is it constitutional? Is it wise? Is it effective? Is it fair? Etc. Um, but one of the things we point out in, in that chapter is it's true that debate has been going on for the last 40 years, but that's far from the whole story. The 40 years before that, from the 1930s to the 1970s, saw the most gigantic affirmative action program in the history of the world, and it was for white people. It was a period in which the FHA and other agencies poured billions of dollars into new suburbs and new homes. 35 million families uh, became homeowners, and they were almost all white. The federal government passed all kinds of laws for uh, for workers, workers uh, I'm sorry, unemployment compensation, social security, minimum wage, and all those laws were structured with the help of Southern congressmen and senators to include most white employees and exclude most black employees. And this is only part of the 40-year affirmative action program for white people. And what we say in the affirmative action chapter is we don't take a position on whether affirmative action based on race is wise or constitutional, but we do say you can't talk about that and leave out the fact that we did the same thing for white people for 40 years that really built today's middle-class America. So that's one of the ways in which you just can't talk about the present without talking about the past, and you certainly can't talk about the future. Yeah, it's interesting to just to pick up on one case in particular. You know, last term we saw the court hand down a ruling in Ramos versus Louisiana that strikes down, you know, systems in Louisiana and Oregon where they allowed people to be convicted of serious crimes by non-unanimous juries. And Justice Gorsuch writing the majority decision, he kind of explains how these non-unanimous jury schemes have their origins in, you know, attempts by those states to uphold white supremacy, to dilute the holdout votes of, you know, the lone black juror on a jury or the lone minority juror. So you can see all these ways in which the past kind of reaches, you know, through to, to what we're talking about today. So I guess I would just ask you, Vernon, you know, in the course of writing this book, how you had to kind of grapple with the modern conversation around race and the law um, and how it relates to, you know, the, the this legacy, uh, these badges and incidents of slavery that persisted for so many generations, as you say. Well, you know, I really believe this. 
uh, whether it's affirmative action or voting rights, uh, the present really does grow out of the future. And probably that's nowhere clearer than in the chapter, which we decided to do after we had actually, the book was ready to go uh, to the press. It had already been approved and accepted. And I look back and realize that uh, there is so much on criminal justice spread throughout that we decided to d- include a chapter on criminal justice. And as we were writing this, it was like one thing after another was happening, uh, particularly, you know, who is accountable uh, for uh, the deaths or what happens to people and the laws change, which Armin uh, can speak to that. And, you know, all of this was based upon laws, whether they were intentional or not, that ultimately allowed, in fact, the interpretation of the courts to say that uh, generally the police in, as individuals are by the the municipality are not responsible. You know, we saw it play out with the, uh, the most famous, uh, the George Floyd incident as we were actually writing, but it's happened again and again. And it seems like, and you go back historically, it's the same way. Unfortunately for Armin, when we started to do this chapter, it really was difficult to put together. People hadn't done before, certainly not in the historical context, all the law on criminal justice and, and how it changes over time. So that's just one example, I think. Well, if I can Armin, you might on. want to speak specifically to sort of a conclusion. Most of the time, we did not try to make conclusions, but there's at least one suggestion uh, as to how to approach this one particular problem. Right. Well, and what Vernon's been talking about has goes back to your questions about how history plays in here, because all the George Floyd case and all that comes out of the Ku Klux Act of 1871. And that's a perfect example. Back in the early 1870s, um, that there were, there were over a thousand prosecutions, civil rights prosecutions a year by the federal government in the early 1870s. And using that law did a lot of things. It drove the Klan out of South Carolina. Uh, it did a huge amount before the country and the court decided that Reconstruction ought to be over. It is the same statute that in during the Warren Court was brought back to life with what we now know as Section 1983. Section 1983 is part of the Ku Klux Act of 1871, and it is the basis, as you know, for um, lawsuits in federal court against state officials, whether they're policemen or anybody else, who violate somebody's federal rights. And it is the same statute that is talked about now in all these cases of, of police shootings, etc. And uh, what Vernon's talking about there is we do talk about the issue of qualified immunity, which is a big deal um, in a lot of the discussions. And we do offer a suggestion for the future saying, we're not going to talk about whether Qualified immunity for individuals is an answer to these or should be changed. But we do say that municipal immunity should be done away with. And municipal immunity is a rule that the Supreme Court came up with in interpreting the Ku Klux Act of 1871. And we say there's no basis for it, that if municipalities ought to be liable 
uh, and that's part of chapter 13. And yet it's a way, it's, it's an issue in, in whether it's George Floyd or Mr. Brown in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and it goes back to the Ku Klux Act of 1871. And the final thing I'll say on that is it is also the Ku Klux Act of 1871 that makes it a crime to try to interfere with a congressman casting, uh, counting the electoral college votes. And that is at the heart of these lawsuits against the former President Trump and the invaders of the Capitol in January of this year. That too is part of the Ku Klux Act of 1871. So what we have here and what you're asking us about and what this podcast and the book you're about is about the past and the present and the future, how they all flow together. And we've tried to tell a story that brings those strands together. You've mentioned how this book really has been in some ways decades in the making. Um, looking back at all that you research, all the work that you put into it, um, you know, any key final takeaways uh, that, that really come to mind or, or, or any, anything that really surprised you um, as you were going about and, 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 and finalizing this book? Well, I, I believe that this is a unique book in the sense of it is looking at race in America from before there is a constitution right up to the almost current day. I mean, we were literally in page proofs as uh, we changed presidents. We got another Supreme Court justice. Uh, uh, Native American cases was decided. Voting rights cases were decided. Criminal law cases. And we put them in up to the day the book book went in. So when you get a 2021 book that has, you know, uh, 2021 court cases and the history is, is pretty current. But one of the things that really struck me in working with Armin was this idea of change over time. And uh, we went back and forth on this, but uh, at Armin's initiative, we started looking at generations and counter generations, 25 years. If you think about the United States or this country had slavery and Jim Crow for 12 generations, and we barely had two generations to overcome all that was built up in generation after generation, just as Armand talked about the last two generations before that, when you had affirmative action for whites only. Uh, so if you think about that, those including the Supreme Court justice who decide cases if our race problems are over, are that in this postmodern, post-racial society, people claim that these things are going to work themselves out. We think that literally they need to count to 12 and then count to two and see if there's a difference because <laughs> history does matter. I've said, you know, many, many times I believe that it's not a one-to-one that you can predict the future from the past, but literally our present has grown out of the past. And to understand it, you have to look back over time, and it also helps us understand where we're going, and the possibilities of where we can go, both positive and negative in the future. Armin, any final thoughts that you want to offer? I think I would, I would come back to the same 12 generations and two generations, because certainly it does mean that people who think we are done and everything is going to be fine by itself, they are 
they are missing the boat. But at the same time, I think the 12 and the 2 give me at least, and I think Vernon also, a reason for hope and a reason for, for a belief that change is going to come. In other words, it took us 12 generations to get into the hole we were in. Uh, we have come a long way in two generations. And we, I, this notion, if we keep on working at it, then in the next generation, I think things will be better than they are now. They certainly are better now than they were. And um, we, with time, which we don't have, with work, which some people want to abandon, um, we are moving in the right direction. So in a sense, that focus on the generations is a reason for working hard, for being dissatisfied with where we are, but for believing that we can make things better. And what working with Armin taught me so much, exactly what Armin said, laws do matter. Those laws do shape the way we behave toward one another and what's permissible and what's not. Well, thank you both. Our guests today are prize-winning author Vernon Burton and civil rights lawyer Armin Durfner. They are the co-authors of the upcoming book Justice Deferred, Race in the Supreme Court. Thank you both for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, it was great to talk to our guests today, and we will be back with another episode next week. Yeah, maybe we'll see some opinions next week or other news. Uh, But for now, thanks so much, Jimmy. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats, and for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term.